Before we begin, we want to take a moment to thank our sponsors at Audible. Now that the weather's getting nicer, I'm back to reading and listening to books in the park. And with Audible, it's never been easier. Every month, I get one credit to pick any title, plus two Audible originals from a monthly selection. In addition, I get access to news digests from the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and the Washington Post. If you go to audibletrial.com slash ymopodcast, you'll get two free audiobooks on us. Download thousands of titles offline anytime, anywhere. Having trouble deciding what to pick? Audible lets you keep your credits for up to a year. Find your summer read and support your favorite National Film Registry podcast. Once again, that's audibletrial.com slash ymopodcast. Thank you for your support. And now, on with the show. Gentlemen, what's a documentary you remember watching that shook you as soon as you saw it? So, I think I had seen a lot of documentaries when I was a kid. Uh, I feel like in school we'd have to watch a lot of, like, the standard documentaries, the ones that we all think of that are the talking head kind of, like, we'll show a person's face or we'll do a voiceover. Those Disney uh, true life adventures that would show just, like, you know, I don't know, an alligator swimming and somebody going, this is the way the alligator swims. All that to say, the the one that shook me and the reason why it did is I remember... uh, especially back when I was younger in like middle school, early high school, I wasn't as big a film nut as I was a music nut. You know, I had watched Woodstock and, and last waltz. And I remember hearing like, there's a Rolling Stone concert film called give me shelter. And so um, I, I remember my dad picked it up for me. Uh, it was a criterion disc. I didn't know what that meant at the time. Uh, the only criterions I had were the man who fell to earth. Cause David Bowie's in it and give me shelter. I knew it was about Altamont, I knew about Altamont, but I just assumed that it would be talking heads, telling us about what happened. The framing device that this film uses of showing you the Rolling Stones watching the footage of the stabbing at the concert and seeing Charlie Watts' face as he watches it, or Mick Jagger's face, and then going in and, and seeing the concert happen, and seeing the events of the film happen. I remember that struck me so much because it was just of course now we have so many different ways of making a film and and all that but the way that people talk about seeing thin blue line for the first time when it came out and thinking like oh my god i didn't realize we could do this something about using film and using the artifice film in that way to get that emotion to show someone reacting to footage you shot to see the Rolling Stones react to that, it's the same way, like, you know, later on you watch something like Beyond the Mat and that footage of Mick Foley watching the footage of his kids watching him get beaten and, and seeing that on him. Just the act of getting to see the Rolling Stones react in an editing lab, you know, looking at that steam back table in front of them and watching them have to process that a murder happened at their concert. Like, that a that person was, was, just, mur- was, was just killed. Uh, at their concert is it was incredible and i just i consider that moment one of the things that affected how i view film as a medium i'd always watched movies like the classic films but but seeing what gimme shelter could do um really just affected how i perceive film in general so gimme shelter i remember for sure uh so for me this one's pretty easy uh it's uh the act of killing it's one of the most profoundly upsetting movies anybody could ever watch Josh Oppenheimer going to uh, Indonesia and having uh, a few of these guys who took part in the mass killings in uh, the seventies or eighties and having them like recreate the kills 
and just talking about all the horrible shit they did and just like getting a real look at what evil really is and how just like none of them really processed like how bad the things they did were except for the one guy who by the end it like finally kind of starts hitting him and he starts freaking out and like dry heaving and like kind of by reliving those moments he kind of has that moment of clarity and you know you could watch documentaries all the time on fucking netflix about this guy killed this this many people this one did that you can listen to you know the ted bundy tapes the john wayne gacy tapes but there's nothing as profoundly upsetting as actually watching these evil evil men and the it's like the banality of the evilness they're just these banal men just talking and laughing and reliving it and just not giving a shit and then just also having like mike said the power of cinema one of these guys kind of having this moment of clarity there's there's nothing like it it's fucking an unbelievable movie and uh i i i dare anybody to watch that and not get really just upset at what this guy was able to capture i want to jump in on this one um yeah i i remember living in new york during my uh, an internship that I was doing, it's the first time uh, I got to live in New York, and I'm living in the arts dormitory that they set us all up with. Um, again, I'm still a poor college kid living in New York, so I, there's not a whole lot to do at the end of the day. But obviously, I got a laptop, I got access to HBO, and I'm watching the Jinx. I love that twist. Yeah. I I remember feeling like I was knocking on every single door in that dorm being like you need to watch this fucking documentary right now because I thought it was the most bizarre moment that not only was it I mean obviously like holy shit I can't believe we got a confession but that it actually resulted in an arrest like within a week was just like so bizarre to me. Every year since 1989, the Library of Congress has selected 25 films to add to the National Film Registry. The criteria? The films must be culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. Each week on You're Missing Out, we take a look at one of these films to try and get to the heart of why they were selected and why they still matter. This week, documentarian Amy Nicholson offers her expertise on an integral workers' rights documentary, 1976's Harlan County, USA. Our guest today is a filmmaker who's made some documentaries I, I very much love. Amy Nicholson is here to talk about Harlan County, USA. Amy, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Welcome. Welcome to the show for uh, what's, what's sure to be quite the discussion. Uh, and, and for a movie that, you know, it's a shame to say is not timely at all. Nope. We don't talk about anything in these movie, this movie anymore. So uh, we're really going to have to struggle. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're so thrilled. To have you here, uh, this was uh, very cool that that you uh, agreed to come on. I was so excited to to even ask. I'm a big fan of, of um, you made a film, uh, Zipper, Coney Island's Last Wild Ride, which I remember seeing and I'm being very uh, enthralled by, uh, as well as the the adorable uh, Pickle, which I have the flip book uh, of that came with the the disc about a uh, about a 
uh, menagerie of uh, animals with uh, various uh, maladies, which is very adorable. Well, thank you. Thank you for still having my my flip book, my little my little promo. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and I thought it was interesting, you know, when we had this coming up, you know, I took a took a shot in the dark, asked if you want to come on, and, and you said to us, which I'm so grateful for, Harlan County, USA, it's uh, this, you know, a pivotal documentary in the history of the of the medium. And I also felt like in its own way, uh, there are a lot of parallels with, you know, your Coney Island documentary in the, in the way that I don't know if that was something you modeled it after or not, but I definitely felt that kinship there. So I, I thought this would be a, a great opportunity to talk about this important film. Well, I'm sincerely flattered. Um, it actually has a, a, a lot more to do with the current film I'm working on, which is about working class people fighting for dignity. So, so it was really great for me to go back and watch it for the millionth time and remind myself what a goddess Barbara Cobb oh, is yeah. and how brave she is. And, uh, you know, I was really humbled watching it again. Well, I was just going to say, you know, uh, I'm just finding out now that you're a documentary filmmaker. I thought he invited you on because you have survived some uh, shootouts with uh, minors and, and whatnot. So uh, <laughs> Mike, made, Mike made a better choice. So I'm, that's, I'm that's glad, true. Yeah, uh, I just... I'm, I'm glad he found a documentarian and not a survivor of uh, Harlan County shootouts. Yeah. I, I've survived some other weird stuff, but never being shot at so far. Yeah, yeah. You know, give it time. <laughs> My career is young. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it, and you said Barbara Cobbles. I mean, you know, I was saying to Tom just uh, before we got on that there is something amazing about I was watching the Criterion and I don't know why I had it in my head that. Uh, when she in the film and we'll get more into the film in a second but when she's in the film talking to the the guy who's asking for her id and she's i always you know she she's making her voice sound a little more like sweet and innocent intentionally because like if this guy's gonna start some shit you know let's have this on camera that he's doing something but it is funny how close it is to how she actually just sounds from day to day. Right. Like you're watching this this gritty intense movie and a lot of her films are like these very serious things and then you just see her just she seems like totally just casual and carefree in interviews just you know best line yeah best line in the film when she says well i think i may have misplaced my yes yes so good. <laughs> good. oh i just i just want to jump up and cheer <laughs> well it's you know it's it's a good way of you know never judge a book by its cover or in this case its voice or as in the same scene never judge a book by its name because that guy's name is Basil Collins, who sounds like a character who's trying to prevent Willy Wonka from giving out his golden ticket. Yeah. Oh, his whole demeanor, his walk, his whole thing. Yeah. I mean, if that guy, if this movie didn't come out after In the Heat of the Night, you would swear that Rod Steiger was like trying right. to be that guy. Right. Right. Oh. So before we get more into what we think of the film... Let's talk about why the registry selected it. Here's what the Library of Congress had to say. An apprentice of Albert and David Maisel's, director Barbara Koppel came into her own with this unvarnished examination of a labor strike by 180 coal miners against the Duke Power Company in Harlan County, Kentucky in 1973. Bypassing narration for real sound and dialogue and evocative music, Koppel produces a film that does not shy away from the harsh working conditions of the strikers or the heated emotions that surround their battle for better wages and working conditions. Her approach to the film's production was an important digression from direct cinema toward a more personal filmmaking style. I think that's 
great and super interesting, especially because this season, um, you know, I mean, what we do on the show is we're going through the film select for the registry induction year by induction year, right? And we're in the second year. Also included this year, there are three documentaries this year. Um, Pare Lorenz's The River, but the other one is Primary, the Robert Drew Kennedy documentary. And we, we covered that earlier, and I think it's so fascinating to see, you know, when we did Primary and that, that early version of direct cinema, and we were talking about just how, how breathtaking and, and new that felt, and then you watch this, and it's just like, oh, this is the next step. This is very much yes. just like yeah. taking it all in direct, line with it. Direct descendant. And, uh, you know, especially because the Maisels were, you know, are connected to that whole that whole scene with yeah, primary, we and, you know, yeah. D.A. Panabaker and the Maisels and all that. So it seems very clear that it's a a very easy line to, 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 to draw between the two, which is, you know, very interesting. Yeah. When you watch all those films and Salesman, oh, just just a work of art, yeah, you know, just a work of art. You don't need to say anything. That's what, that's what I love about that style. That school is nothing exists explained. There's not even any lower thirds. And until you in Harlan County, until you get into, you know, who were the leaders of um, the union and who were the oil company people, you know, just to discern them. But yeah, but nothing, nothing is over explained, which I love, love it's, that. It's, it's very, uh, I'm pretty sure we discussed this in primary about how it's very experiential. It's about being, trying to place you right in the moment with these people instead of over explaining it to you. I think we even talked about it in primary, probably in the Ninochka episode too, how it feels like documentaries like this, kind of like a demarcation line of like pre and post Errol Morris. I just want to right, know the nook of the North, Tom. The Nochka. The Nochka. I was like, number one, <laughs> number one scripted right, well, film. Number right. two, we haven't done the Nochka yet, so I don't know when we did this. All right. Well, Amy was having technical difficulties. Me and Mike are having cognitive diff- difficulties <laughs> today. So, um, but uh, it feels like yeah, there's this demarcation line, and like now it feels like most documentaries go in that Errol Morris way, where I feel pretty energized watching these older school you know i don't want to say older school in, in that way but like the pre arrow morris you have talking heads and it's everything's being explained to you and it's more about getting a complete story with you know the director's biases and everything michael moore falls in that as well kind of but um it's very refreshing you know to just kind of be thrown into something instead of being having your hand held I love being thrown in and having to figure it out and yeah. having to figure out who, who's got what at stake. Then it becomes my journey and not just the filmmaker's journey. And it makes you just pay attention more. You, you can, you, you have to just like always be focused. You know, you can't, sure. just, like, <laughs> you can't you miss can't, anything. <laughs> yeah. You can't miss anything. You can't like glance away because, Oh, the talking head is telling us what's happening or whatever. It's like, no, you have to be here. Otherwise you're going to miss. They're getting machine gunned now. What just happened? Yeah. Or, yeah. you know, or, uh, you know, this union guy just had, you know, other union guys, uh, you know, whacked. Uh, you go, wait, what? what? What's happening now if you're not paying attention? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. The gun, the gun scene in um, Harlan County kind of comes out of nowhere. The gun scene in Harlan County um, was so amazing because the DPs talked on that Criterion channel behind the scenes about how 
the they were positioned to get the cars, but the lights were going straight into the camera lens. But it ends up to be so artful and so much scarier than if they had actually caught the action of what whatever was happening at the time. So yeah, I um I give them a lot of credit for how how brave they are and also how brave they were oh, yeah. in the edit too, because they did. They could have put a super up in the middle, yeah. which would have happened today, probably. Somebody would have told them to put a super in the middle that explained exactly what had happened. And instead, I just felt unnerved. Oh, yeah. And, and then the next 10 minutes of the film are so riveting because you're like, what just happened? Especially because you get that great moment um, that I think of all time. Whenever I think of this film, the two images that come to mind for me there's the one at the beginning, which is just all the guys sliding headfirst into the mine, uh, which I which I love just because the fact that the movie takes so much time to sort of ingratiate you into that world and make you feel that claustrophobia of the mines, it never has, you know, it, it's not about, you know, going in and, and it just makes you feel those conditions. But the other one that gets me is that moment, they kind of slow down the footage of, you know, the guy driving by. You see him pull out the gun and you see on his face, like him processing, there's a camera here, I can't do this, and it goes back down. And that's all you need to see. In the special features, they have somebody outright say, if the cameras weren't there, a lot more people would have died. You don't need anyone to say it in the film because just watching that slow motion moment tells you these people were essentially saved by the fact that they knew there would have been accountability if they did something which I think is just such an right. incredible moment. Incredible. Which, I mean, which, I mean, you know, then again, the way the movie ends with them saying, well, they kill somebody, you know, they go to, you know, they get arrested and everything kind of gets wiped away. If we shot somebody, they, you know, so maybe, maybe old, good old Basil wouldn't have uh, gone away for 25 years if they, even with it caught on camera. But um, yeah, I, I was going to, you know, Mike made a joke before, I think before we were recording that I'm the guy with the Alexandria of B movies behind me. But like, I watch all sorts of horrific shit all the time and nothing um, in years has affected me as much as that scene where it feels like that's the kind of rush that every found footage movie wants to capture. And even the most effective ones like a Blair Witch or, you know, a paranormal activity, they can't capture because there's still just that, like, there's always got to be a monster element to it where this is just, no, it's just a guy who just clearly doesn't see these people as human beings worth a damn and that I could just cut them down. And that just, like Mike said, that, that human moment of, Oh, well, there's a camera here. I might have to assassinate these people later. Well, especially cause yeah. also that footage going slow feels like, um, uh, it felt a lot like, I don't know the deals, but you almost imagine that because it was in, you know, uh, later in the evening and the, and the cars were driving by so fast, that in the moment, the people may have even been feeling like, who was that? What was that? And then going back and looking at the footage, yeah. akin to like when you watch Gimme Shelter. And, oh, you know, I love that. It's, <laughs> and that's been ripped off so many yeah. times. Yeah, you see, but like <laughs> the fact that they're sitting there and like nobody knew what the hell was going on in Altamont at the moment. And then the fact that you can actually slow down and go like, oh, no, that's look at this. That you almost feel that in the moment. Because what I think is so good and like Tom noted about found footage films. And I also feel with other documentaries, I'm not, gonna, I'm not going to trash any, you know, <laughs> directly on Mike. But there's one film I maybe don't love where part of the issue is that the filmmakers are just pointing the camera at themselves for a good chunk of the time, telling you how scared they are and how intense the moment is for them and all that. What Koppel does so well is, like, she never editorializes in that way. 
She just goes, how can I edit this and how can I present this footage in a way that makes you feel what I felt rather than come on in voice. I mean, in, in her sort of semi-spiritual sequel to this American Dream uh, from 1990, she, is, she speaks more often in the film. She gives a bit more voiceover. And you do kind of feel like, you know, with this, she just found a way to always give you her experience without ever talking to you or telling you. You know what I mean? Well, exactly going back to that that specific scene in the criterion behind the scenes, you see that the cameraman caught the back of her head mm-hmm. and you see her headset and you see her, you know, boom pole. But that was not in the film. Yeah. What you see in the film is just the shot that is her point of view talking to that man and how close she was to him and his smile and his smirk when he says, you know, I think I've misplaced my, you know, my card or whatever he says, you know? So that's, that's where I feel like the choices were very specific and allowed the audience to really feel what it was like to be there as opposed to telling you what it was like through them somehow. I don't, I don't know. I did, I didn't feel the cat. I didn't feel the cameraman and, um, and, uh, yeah, also going back to the beginning, which was shot by Hart Perry. Um, you know, he, he says in the behind the scenes, yeah, we, we realized we didn't really have a lot of footage of, you know, going into a coal mine and, I can tell you, you know, in today's world, somebody would probably say to them in their rough cut, oh, you better put that that scene with the guy with the gun first and then go back in time and, you know, rebuild. And they didn't. They just started with, it's a normal day at work for these men, these men who are dying of black lung and you can see could see how filthy they are when they come out you can feel how tight the camera work is you know because the the ceilings were probably like a foot high at yeah. some point and yeah just just very brave just very brave choices all around i think it's really and you know i mean look i do want to correct one thing you mentioned uh you know dying of black lung um there was a fella in the film uh representative of the company who says that that doesn't happen and he seemed very reputable you know that that fella uh why would he lie? Uh, why would he? You know, cigarettes don't kill people either. No, of course not. Absolutely. Why, why would it's, he lie? Guns you know. don't, don't guns don't kill people. People kill people. It's fine. Oil wells are really safe. It really, it really is one of those things that just feels like you know. Anytime they show it, that it it almost felt like you know when they show in a modern documentary when they show archival footage from like 30, 40 years ago to kind of go. Hey, look how dumb we were then. We thought this, but it's like, no, they knew this then. Like even right. even right. in the moment when people were saying this, like Coppola and her crew were like, bullshit. That's not right. It feels like uh, the moment in in the Insider where they like flashback to the the what is it the Three Kings this whatever yeah, the, yeah. the heads of the mm-hmm. the cigarette companies and it's like they're testifying yeah cigarettes don't kill people we know this we have our records and our you know experiments and all that and then you just cut to Russell Crowe being like no nah, they knew. Yeah. Yeah. No, 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 they knew. Like we, we, we know it's, it's just one of those things. Like I joked before, we, we just don't learn. It seems like we have entire swaths of people that will still just believe anytime a boss says, no, we've done nothing wrong. Why would I lie about this? And you go, well, there's no "Uh, shortage of denial in the modern day political sphere either. So, well, that's, (laughs) yeah, that's what, that's, that's that's what I mean, where it's just like, just say it didn't happen. (laughs) 
Why would I lie? Come on, look right. at me. Why would I lie? It's not like I have stock options in this company. Why would I lie? But what I do find fascinating about this film, and I was saying at the time that one of the things I find so refreshing about it, and also in, in her other films like American Dream, one of the things that I find frustrating in today's uh, just discourse, be it political or just in documentaries or whatever, is people tend to try and obfuscate any elements that might not make their point or might not help their argument. And what I think is so good about this film is that it is, I mean, undeniably, inarguably pro-labor. It is pro-workers' rights. There's no argument that that's not the stance of this film. And yet, it does not shy away from the fact <laughs> that the president of the union had someone killed. It includes a, a scene of a guy right at the start, uh, the, the same guy we're talking about, saying, well, you know, unions, you know, Hoffa's in jail. And you're like, it's a great bit of place setting because I feel like too often now when, you know, you see people try to make a case, you know, any kind of, whether it's, it's historians or, or documentaries or whatever, that it kind of only focuses on whatever helps support the conclusion they want you to draw. And sure. I think that what she does so well in this and then later in American Dream 2 is to kind of go, look, I'm going to acknowledge the system, the union system, not perfect, but right. also, <laughs> holy shit, it's so much worse with what the company's doing. And I think that that's so great because it makes it easier to digest the film and to, to really side with the film because you don't feel like she's not being upfront about everything. You know what I mean? Right. The context is true. Yes. The context is true to the times. Yeah. And it yeah. it feels very much as a part of the style, like we're saying, the experiential style. Then there's no editorializing. There's no th talking heads or anything. It just and it's all about like that that human quality that this kind of move, this kind of st documentary style brings, which is one of my favorite parts of of the movie is how you just get all these scenes of humans and all this. You know, there's two scenes in particular I'll mention later, but just it's that human thing of like, okay, we need unions, but Unions are run by people, and a lot of there's a lot of good people here, but you get that rug pull at the end where oh that union guy that you know won the election halfway through the movie before people started getting shot and everything yeah he kind of fucked everybody and put in a clause that they couldn't strike, and you go oh okay um, this is a and little he more complicated like such a you know from the ranks guy for yeah. so long and oh yeah that's why the rug pull was really <laughs> a bitter pill i think in general it's the ending that really does solidify what makes this movie so great i mean you like the, the shooting scene is great all these scenes of humans just being humans and talking or whatever like you get that real sense of place and time that i love about just film in general but documentaries but like it's that ending. It, it is that ending of things are more complicated than we ever on either side of the aisle want to admit. And sure. we need to be upfront about that before we just start yelling at each other and saying, well, you're not enough of a, you know, union man, because you went to jail once and you're not, you're not down at the pickets anymore. And it's like, well, we're, we're still going. What do you want from me? You're bad. You're not a union person anymore. And just, just all that, all that stuff is great i don't know that's why it's so fascinating because you look at this film and, and what it concludes with is very much a um you know i've evoked this a few times i apologize for bringing it up so much but uh the you know american dream which she won the oscar in 90 about the hormel strike 
there's no nobody pulls guns in that. You know, there's no violence. There's no dirty tactics. Instead, what it is, is it's a continuation of the ending of this film. Because the ending of this film is, you know, in a w- one way of reading the ending of this film is essentially like, we were so busy, rightfully, dealing with the boss man and the guys with the guns and all that, that we maybe missed, like, the, the issues we had back going on in our organization. And uh, Harlan County is, you know, it's 76, the film comes out. This is pre-Reagan. This is pre, uh, oh my God, am I, Palco. Palco was the, the air traffic controllers strike in the 80s, right? Somebody will yell at me in the reviews about the abbreviation. But whatever it was, when essentially like the worst blow that ever happened to organized labor, when, when the, you know, the air traffic controllers went on strike and Reagan just went, well, you're, you're all fired then, and that was that. And American Dream takes place in the wake of Reaganomics, and you see that shift where in Harlan County, for the most part, even though the, you know, the bosses are using these awful tactics, like you have that scene where the, the, the miner is in Wall Street talking to the cop. And this New York State oh, cop is, is basically brilliant. going, yeah, you're getting screwed. Yeah, it's, it's an incredible moment. And then you go to American Dream, and every time the guys who are striking talk to someone, that person goes, you got a good job. You got good pay. Like, what are you complaining about? Yeah. And to see that in a way that if Harlan County ends with that note of like, hey, we got our new contract and we kind of got screwed here. American Dream is very much about a bunch of people who were relying on their, you know, their, their meat packers union to help them. And instead, because of infighting and bringing in a labor advisor and bringing in Jesse Jackson to make speeches, like the company realized, like, we don't need intimidation tactics. We just need to give these guys enough rope to hang themselves. And like, they'll, it'll, it'll just come apart from infighting. And I think that it's just so interesting that it's, it's, if you will, uh, to put it in the parlance of modern blockbusters, like Tom notes, that ending scene about them in the new contract is almost like the post credit scene of the American labor movement, where it's just like, this is warning you, this is what the 80s right. is going to be. Yeah, like, you're about to hear that music play and Jigsaw's about to stand up in the <laughs> yeah. bathroom and you go, oh, oh shit. No. Oh, we were no. we were we weren't paying attention to the bloated monster in the middle the of the room. Company men were in the house the whole time. It's it's yeah, so yeah. The call's coming from inside the house. Uh, and yeah, the 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 scene with the cop is oh. the best scene in the it, well, my favorite scene in the movie. The best scene's the shooting scene, but my favorite just because we live in New York and we deal with so many cops that we either grew up with or we knew that became cops and. They would not talk like that today, mainly because no, of how they were working class. They yeah. were working class then. So they were saying, hey, I support my family and I have, you know, a pension and I get health benefits. And they're talking about dental and yeah. eye coverage. And, you know, they're talking about really things that make such a huge difference if you are on a limited salary. And that's what's so um, charming about it is it's just two guys. They just yeah. happen to be in the middle of Wall Street, in yeah. the middle of a protest, and they happen to be from opposite spectrums of the earth in terms of like how they grew up and where they were from. You know. Yeah, and I, I love I love the guy, the cop, being like, "Yeah, what do you guys you you guys get good money, right? What do you get like five, six dollars an hour?" And he goes, "Nope, we don't get that." And he's like, "Really?" I get more than that. And it's like, and the guy, and the mind is like, well, is your job dangerous? And the guy goes, no, this is all I do all day. I stand around and do nothing. (laughs) And it's one of those things where like to, to bring it back, looking at that cop in that scene and he's so sympathetic to the worker. And there's, there is that part of your brain that worries like, Hey, I like this guy. I'm on, you know, this guy's, this guy gets it. But also in like 
four years a former actor is going to get on TV and say, you know, I- I'm from the government and I'm here to help or bad words. And that dude's just suddenly going to lose all interest in the in his fellow working man, which is such a strange moment to capture. Well, that's I mean, that's that's the thing you're talking about with the post Reagan stuff yeah. where these guys are the guys that really bought hook, line and sinker into that post Reagan anti-union sentiment, which is. Again, the funniest thing about the, you know, the dichotomy, the the cognitive dissonance that happens in this country is those guys have the, probably the strongest unions in the country where they literally just elect like brainless thugs to head the police unions, which then just control everything in New York where they'll say, all right, well, if you don't want us to do this, if you're upset about us stepping on this guy's neck because he sold a loose cigarette, well, then we're just not going to go to work. Good job with that, New York City. I mean, that's... thanks to the unions. One thing that struck me about that moment, too, um, and I, I have to ask this, Amy, of you, you know, from your position as a documentarian is listening to the commentary and hearing them talk about like, yeah, that scene was just we just had a mic on him. We had no idea that was going to happen. Mm-hmm. Like, that is one of those moments that I would, you know, that I, I imagine, like, you know, working in the field you work in, you kind of dream of, of just like, I oh, call holy shit, right? Yeah, yeah. I call that horseshoes. Horseshoes fell out of your yeah cavities. Yeah, <laughs> where you're just going like, oh my god, this is this, keep uh, this is gold. Keep going, keep going, you know. But also, I mean, again, those cameramen, um, those DPs, amazing skill sets because not only did they pay attention, but they knew when to keep going. And, you know, we can't talk about this with really without addressing the the difference in the technology Mm -hmm. because now you can roll and roll and roll and people shoot 800 hours of footage. And my opinion on that is if you can't make a documentary out of shooting 800 hours of footage, then you don't have a story to begin with. (laughs) But you know, if you're working with a 16 millimeter camera, which I did on my first film, you have to stop and reload every 11 minutes. Yep. So, you know, and and you have to use a clapper because the sound isn't going to automatically sync in Premiere, you know? And, and, yeah. and you know, they, and the cameras are heavy and you have to you have to listen to hear if the rank is not too loud, if it's not going, brrr, you know, over the dialogue. And those guys, they just, and they zoomed in and they held the shot and and I know that in the editing, you know, they cut they cut away at some point to just probably trim up the dialogue. But for the most part, that scene is a one take wonder. Yeah. And I also oh, yeah. I'm I'm glad you brought up shooting on sixteen millimeter because um you know Tom and I uh, in school both shot on Bolexes and CP sixteens. So Amy, I'm glad you're here for our recurring segment. We yell at Gen Z about not knowing how good they have it. <laughs> We had to load the cartridge in a black bag. (laughs) We had to learn the F stops by memory, kids. Like that's our. I I do have to maybe clarify a little thing, a little something, because Amy said, uh, if you don't have a movie with 800 hours of footage, you don't have a movie. Uh, I have to disagree respectfully. If you don't have a movie out of 800 hours of footage, you just have a Netflix documentary series. (laughs) Oh, okay, yeah. Then you can just cut it up into eight pieces. Then you just cut it up into eight pieces, and then by the eight episode, you go, huh. (laughs) <laughs> really wasting my time here. Yeah. Although I have seen some good ones. Oh, yeah. But... No, there's some good ones. I can't I can't yeah. wait to watch uh, Joe Berlinger's uh, John Wayne Gacy thing. because. Well, Me too. Yeah, I love his work. And yes. Um, and his Ted Bundy a, one was great. I'm going to a 35 millimeter screening on Saturday of Brothers Keeper, Ooh. which, uh, what a beautiful film yeah. that is. 
Fantastic. Um, but yeah, no, I have done both. I have done um, the, the modern version on the film that I just shot. I had to shoot by myself. So now I have a deep appreciation of every DP in the world. <laughs> and I will never question their choices because it is really, really hard. I have been lucky enough to shoot with Jerry Recius, who um, just made Storm Lake and um, on every film. And he is brilliant. And then I had to go out on this last one by myself because I just couldn't take a crew. There was no way. And so I went from, you know, the brilliance of a proper cameraman to myself with a little pocket 4K. And it, even though the technology was there to keep rolling and rolling and rolling, it was just as hard because the skill is in the cameraman's arms, you know, so... I mean, listen, you're, you're talking to, not myself, you're talking to a man who uh, shot his entire senior thesis film on his uh, smartphone, f- smartphone in vertical mode, uh, <laughs> playing all the roles because he forgot to do it. And when the professor asked, was this intentional? He just looked at him and said, yes. Of course it was. <laughs> it was very intentional. He I got was, his degree. I, I got a B plus on it. So, what, you know, hey, I gained the system. What do you want from so, me? So, you know, I'm saying we, we we are in the presence of someone who was, was totally capable of being his own DP. So, you know, the rest of us just got to up our game here. Did you consider <laughs> that? Did you consider shooting the whole thing in vertical on your iPhone? That might have made it easier. Yeah, no. Um, <laughs> no, it just, you know, any uh, any kind of camera. But, that, but the beauty of that black magic was that a lot of times people thought I was just taking photos even though I had a monitor on there and I would show people what I was shooting and um, I was very open about what I was doing, but it's just, I think the size of them and the fact that I kept the package very small and I used um, uh, still lenses instead of city lenses because they're a lot lighter and manageable. Um, So yeah. So um, a lot of times people were, would be posing, you know, it was cute. It was, it was really fun actually. So, well, I think there's also something and it's true in this film and and we talk about, there's also something about the way that people interact with a camera and, and respond to a camera in terms of like, and we dealt with this with primary and we talked about how, uh, you know, if you watch primary Kennedy early on, every time he notices the camera, it gets very in his professional moment. But then there, he gets to the level of comfort with it, where when he's in his, when they're waiting for the results of the primary, he's smoking a cigarette, he's saying the word shit, like he's just, he's totally relaxed. With this film, Barbara a couple talked about when they first got there, the women in town were giving them fake names, and they were very hostile. But you start to see that, like, it's it's always a great moment when you see that the people in the film kind of forget the camera is there. Or, I mean, they right. know it's there, but they get comfortable enough. It's like when they make nature documentaries now and they hide the cameras in the rocks. It's not like the, the snow leopard doesn't see the camera, but after like a couple days, it just goes, whatever, if you're going to be there, film it. And I, what you're talking about with the way that people, you know, responded to you and like they were posing for pictures, they, like that moment when you finally get the subject you're filming past being aware of the camera, I think, is where just some of the most magical stuff comes from. And this film does such a great job of getting certain people comfortable with the camera and with other people making sure they're uncomfortable because of the camera. It knows how to strike that balance depending on who it's talking to. Yeah. Also, you know, well, the rule of what is the rule of documentary is exhibition is stronger than inhibition. And so at some point there is a term, but it really is the skill of um, 
the the filmmaker in this case Barbara who went in and and got I mean the women are the story so she she had to and I I I could be wrong about this but I would probably say that the women were harder to um, break down and get on her side than probably the men at that point because the men were already out on strike and were already you know standing in a public space and all of that but the women were very behind the scenes and you know women can be mean (laughs) you know they can be they can you know they're very protective and so I think she did an amazing job and also you know I, I think about this all the time and I think about this when I go out too is technology has made it so that everybody shoots their own things now and everybody's used to everything being on social media now. And back then nobody even had a phone. So, you know, you have to think about the disconnect of, I think it was, I think it's two things. I think it's, it's even more scary for them to have a camera because it's like, wow, it must be really important if there's a camera here. Whereas now, you know, everybody films everything and, Something happens in the street and 30 people are filming it. But I also think there there was an innocence to that too. And they had something they needed to do. And she had something she needed to do. So she got them to come to terms with, let us help you. I think you feel that in the film completely. And I agree with you about the, the women and how they responded because I think... You know, when they, I was reading and them talking about like originally they were hostile because they came down looking like these, you know, New York hippies. And then you watch the footage and go, yes, they did. It's hard to imagine, but like, holy cow, that's like, and I do imagine like there had to be hostility. I mean, in terms of with Barbara, especially at the time, I mean, you look at how she looked when she was making this, you know, like you see her in interviews now and there is this, this, not that she doesn't seem still like happy and cheerful, but there is this sense of wisdom from her whenever you're speaking, but you look at her then and she is this tiny you know, like looks like a college student and she's going down with a camera and she's, you know, trying to be like, I want to, you know, I want to speak to the minors. You ha- I imagine in a way like the men, because I did hear them say like uh, her say that the men in the mines did not want to bring her down there, that there was this superstition oh. and attitude against having women in the mines. You weren't supposed to have women in the mines, but the men otherwise, I'm sure were comfortable talking to her because I guess in their mind, like, She's a tiny little thing. What's she going to do? You know, if it gets right, right. But the women were probably hostile, not just to, uh, you know, her, but also the idea of she was so much an outsider. Mm-hmm. You know, these, these are, you know, I mean, you see, I mean, again, she's talking to women who are packing guns in their bras. And here right. is this <laughs> tiny, just like. And they were tough. Yeah. They were tough ladies. I mean, look what they, look how they live. They're, and they're incredible. And here's this tiny, incredible. pretty, put together you know, New York, girl New York girl coming yeah. down. And I'd imagine that there had to be this moment from them of like that, that thing that I think we all get sometimes that chip on our shoulder. You know, I, I make the joke to Tom all the time. We're from long Island. And uh, anytime you do work in Manhattan, you know, I work in an office now and there's always that impulse to go, well, you think you're better than me? You think you're better than me? <laughs> and you do feel that in, especially like the outtakes that they have on, on the DVD or whatever. Like you do feel that from these people toward her and the crew. Uh, you know, at certain points of just like, okay, you think you're better than me. Like that that feeling of just like, listen, you know, you may come down here with your camera and you may, I live this. This is this is my my life. I've got everything here, you know. 
and nobody's taken that from me, which I think is so great. But she won them over. Oh yeah. Won them over. And I can tell you, um, every, every single grant application now is what is your access and who do you know? And are you from that community? And, you know, why are you the person that can tell this story? And I just want to scream from the rafters and say, because whoever is the bravest and whoever wants to go for it should. Yeah. It should not matter. And if you can go and embed yourself in that community and win them over like she did, more power to you because you're the person that should tell that story. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, you know, that that lived experience is the principle of, of all kinds, not just film journalism, but all. Sure. Of all, yeah, of all journalism and also of, of any kind of artistic undertaking yeah. really you know if if you if you have the balls to do it do it you know yeah. then i want you to be that person you know yeah. i i don't know i mean i think there's a lot of um i don't know i won't say you know politically correct and you know but i think things get very muddled now in terms of access and why you and how do you know this and it's like if you stumble upon something great or if you re- i recently read um, something where a woman said, oh, I read an article and then I contacted these women. I won't say what the story is because it's just out now. But I was like, right, because this was on a, a Zoom. And I was like, right on, because I love that. I love that, you know, something crosses your desk and you just think, oh, it hit me and this is for me. And and I'm I will be good at this because your desire to go and get to the bottom of it is what's going to get you to hang in and really, um, like, like Barbara did, like she made friends with those women. Those women were amazing. They made the film. I think the film is about the women. Oh, I, I agree. And it can, I, 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 <laughs> I may be I biased. <laughs> no, I, it, I, I think it's about the women too. And just going off of what Amy was just saying. I mean, I say this on the show all the time, you know, it's all about doing the research, doing the homework, putting the effort in, because like, like I say on the show all the time, nobody got mad at Michael Mann when he made Ali. Because the guy did his homework and he didn't turn it into like a minstrel show. And he it's made a right. legit work, yeah. you know. And it's also important that like, you know, uh, that somebody being an outsider can sometimes be an advantage because yes. somebody who had lived that life the entire time already knows how they feel about it. And, you know, when Barbara Koppel went in to make this film, she didn't think it was going to be about the strike, per se. She just wanted to get into the intricacies of the UWMA. And some of the best documentaries are the ones that think they're going to be about one thing and become about something else. Those are the stories we love hearing. You know, uh, uh, every person, I, I, one of the documentaries I always go to when somebody tells me they don't like documentaries uh, or they don't care about documentaries is the one that won the Oscar a couple of years ago, which is Icarus, because I tell them all the time, like, start it. I don't tell them anything else, but I'm just like, start it, because the amazing thing about that is it starts as one thing, it becomes another, you know, that outsider experience. Um, I'm working on a piece now, and, and I, I talk about, like, one of my sort of, in a way, one of my journalistic heroes is, is George Plimpton, because George Plimpton was just, you know, he had no business being in a boxing ring or being on a football team or being on a hockey team. But the fact that he doesn't have that background makes his experience and how he perceives it so much more engaging. And I think that Barbara Koppel being from New York, being, you know, the person that she was, is what helps tell that story. And perhaps somebody who had 
inherently lived in Harlan County all their lives wouldn't have gotten that same point of view. And, and maybe, you know, in, in so many ways, it could be something as simple as certain things that a person who lived there their whole life took for granted and didn't think about. She locked into the way that, like, the, the use of music in this film is so important. You know, Amazing. Oh, it's, it's absolutely yeah. incredible. And, and it's so funny because this comes out the same year as Bound for Glory. The, um, the, the Hal Ashby uh, biopic of Woody Guthrie. So at the same time, essentially, you could go to the cinema and see the fictionalized version of Woody Guthrie writing these songs about, you know, staying in the picket line and sticking to the union, and then go see Harlan County, USA, as those songs from the 30s labor struggles are repurposed to reflect the current struggle. Well, and resung. Yes. Uh, well, is that even? I'm not even sure that's English, yeah. but <laughs> <laughs> yes. But yeah, but she had people sing them, which I loved, and I loved seeing the people sing. And them. my favorite moment of the singing is, I believe it's when uh, the the women get arrested, uh, and the one woman just quickly dashes off, like you know, and we got to get them out there. We got to get them out. You know, keep on the picket line, always on the picket line, and rattles it off so quickly. And I love that because it shows you how much this music is intrinsic to their culture. Like it is intrinsic to the culture of that town and that community that it's, that you can rattle it off. Like it's nothing, you know, that it just becomes a part of your language. And that for the rest of us, maybe these Woody Guthrie songs or these protest songs are things that we heard in high school or we heard sanitized versions of, you know, uh, in a history film. But for them, this is a living piece of their culture. You know, I think that's so powerful. Yeah, I um, I also really, you know, thought quite a bit about, you know, but back to the access question. You know, it's because Barbara brought to a community that was completely foreign to her a sophisticated eye. She did not talk down to the people. She was right there with them. And she didn't shoot, you know, like feet in the mud and like, you know, make it like, oh, look at this place. And isn't it crazy and scary? And she didn't go into their homes. She didn't, you know, not, I mean, a little bit, but, you know, she, she kept it focused on the matter at hand. And then also, you know, if you come into it as an outsider, you have the ability to say, what do I want people to see that is flattering, you know, Uh, honest, but also honestly flattering. So I I don't know. I I really felt like it walks that line perfectly, but I I felt that way about all the Maisel's films. And, um, and also one of my other favorite films of all time, (laughs) which nobody really remembers this, but Elliot Erwitt, famous photographer, he shot a film that, I think is my favorite documentary ever called Beauty Knows No Pain and is about the Kilgore College flag troop tryouts in like 1974 or something. You can find it online. Talk about being an outsider. It's all women. Mm-hmm. And um, it is just the tryouts of this flag troop and what it means to the women. And he gets it. It's dead on. I, it's, it's, I've watched it. A, oh, a million times, probably. <laughs> I think it's so important what you say about how she films them and talking about no feet in the mud and all that. Like, every person in this film 
and not just the uh, the minors and not just the women. Every one of them gets dignity. Dignity. They are viewed with dignity. Now, they have the opportunity to lose that respect and dignity through their actions. But she never sets you up to look down on anyone. You know, That's right. the, the first time we see, uh, now I'm forgetting, the gentleman with the gun, uh, whose name escapes Basil. me. Basil. Basil, yes. Basil. The first time we yeah. see him, he's having the cigarette, and he's the one that has the line about, you know, unions destroying the country, you know, Hoffa's in jail, you know, they're all communists, whatever. And uh, now, granted, you know, we're in uh, 2022, we've more than learned any guy that goes, they're all communists, you know, to go. <laughs> but I thought that initial statement, especially that early on in the film, of like just place setting you and going like, right, yeah, Jimmy Hoffa's in jail. Like this, yeah, that happened. And she basically gives him the opportunity in the way that she frames him and the way that she frames everybody else, gives them the opportunity to look, you know, to 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 earn the audience's respect and to and to have that. And I think that that's so crucial that she well, doesn't set up anybody, you know. Well, that's 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 the thing about humanity you know if you just give people enough rope they'll hang themselves yeah which is at at the end of the day you don't need to do any trickery i mean this guy's gonna end up opening fire on people you don't need to throw some scenes of him being like a slob at a diner and being like oh yeah you know goddamn kids and oh yeah blah, blah, blah. just no just show him as he, as he is he's a human being you know everybody's got their and layers that, and let other people make yeah. their opinion yeah, yeah. and then and then all you need to do is this guy's a, a human and he's about to go shoot some people. Yeah. You don't really need to okay. editorialize. It's pretty simple. Uh, a and B. It's a, it's a one plus one equals two situation here. Yeah. And even in like the first scene where we see, you know, the first time the cops kind of break up the picket. Right. I think what she does so well with that is that I'm sure, you know, we've all been, uh, you know, in an editing bay at some point. You know, we all know how you can move footage around. It would have been very easy to make that first confrontation look like just the cops are walloping the hell out of these guys. But I think it's so important that she shows, like, there's a standoff and there's some tension. But also, some of these guys are laughing. Some of these guys know each other. And then the cars are coming through. And the cops are saying, stand back. And some of the guys push through and start hitting the car with their hand. And then you start seeing the clubs come out. And then they're choking the guy. And I think that that's so important. That scene is so great because it's not about just showing you like, hey, you know, this is how violent it got. It's showing you how it broke down. And it's showing right. you, you don't come away from that scene. Well, I mean, you know, maybe some of the, you know, some relatives we have now would say it. But, you know, you don't come away from that scene. <laughs> Going, yeah. you know, hey, if that guy hadn't hit that car, that wouldn't have happened. But you do get to see how these guys go from, listen, buddy, you know, I get your cause, just don't get unruly, to I'm going to choke you and drag you down the Right, road. provoking, yes. yeah. Mm -hmm. I think that that's... It, that it was a cause and, and a reaction. Yeah. yeah. I think that that is what I come away from so impressed with this film, because I feel like, you know, look, every year, you know, the Oscars roll around and I watch all the nominated documentaries. Uh, I used to work at a... Me too. Yeah. I do, you know, and, and plenty of times, you know, you see things that just feel like, you know, because they're the ones that get voted for, which are the films that just look directly into camera and go, this is how you should feel about this. And I just think that it's... I'm so impressed oh. with the steady hand that she has with this film the whole time. 
I was rooting for Ascension this year. I loved that film. I I liked Ascension oh. a lot. I, I this year was a pretty. I I wasn't. I I well, listen. Our our Oscar episodes out there. There's there's an episode <laughs> where I where I really trash talk a recent winner, but and none of them this year. I wasn't mad at anything uh, this year. Uh, <laughs> folks can do their <laughs> digging. Going back to your um, going back to you know the the dignity and um, you know treating treating the people as heroes that um that for the opening scene mm-hmm. where the men go into the mine i mean that is you know what you take away from that is boy does that look horrid that is a miserable job those people are definitely going to die of black lung but you also when they come out the belt at the end of the day and then they they go home and you're just like, oh, wow. You know, that is a, it's very romanced. Yeah. So it's, it's treated with respect and it's not, you know, you, you could have had somebody like coughing yeah. at the end. Of the, but no, it's, it's just, it's, it's art. So. And yeah. shortly so, thereafter, when she has all the footage of all these people talking about the mining accidents and the people who died, what's so great is none of them sound angry and by that i mean like i'm sure they are incensed at what happened but it is it is spoken of matter of factly it's part of life exactly that's what i think it captures so well is that it's just and it helps you understand and not do that thing that a lot of us you know east coast new yorkers might do which is go if the mines are so dangerous go work somewhere else like it's not you know it's very much letting you know, like, this is this is the culture, this is the life down here. And the fact that, ultimately, the fact that these people are willing to accept death and disease as part of this life also helps you understand, like, how bad must things be that well, now that, you know. Well, and also that it was, it was tradition. Yeah. You know, you did what your dad did and what his dad did. And, you know, you got that scene of those guys saying, like, yeah, there's some other jobs we can get around here but they're only going to pay us barely minimum wage and we can't live off of that otherwise we have to completely leave Kentucky in in you know completely uh so there's that which and again bringing up the tradition thing you know I love that there's this kind of looming specter of the bloody wars that happened mm-hmm. you know a, you know a few decades ago where it's never like th- th- there's the old lady who mentions it a lot towards the end. She's like, I lived through this. I saw people dying in the streets and blah, 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 blah. But it's just this lingering thing where it's always kind of mentioned briefly of like, this has happened before. We're lining up and picketing and trying to stop cars and this could happen again. So there's just this, you know, there is a tradition, but it's also a tradition of these rich fucks will kill us if we step out of line too, too hard and mm-hmm. a little too long, which is, uh, Again, goes to the steady hand of not over-explaining things and just letting it, all right, we're here. We can kind of start inferring things. And yeah, one of, pretty, one of the, bad. One of the women um, that I filmed for the new film, um, she described um, the people as the little people. And I didn't put it in the film because it's too, it's too on the nose, but it really stayed with me for a long, long time. Just the fact that that's how she felt that her class of people were viewed. And it's it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. It's my motivation to get up in the morning and edit every day. (laughs) 
But at so. the same time, you know, uh, you talked about the women of this film, and I, I think one thing that's so interesting about them is is that you know, in the film, you know, a lot of them talk about like, you know, I'm a miner's wife. I've been, a, you know, I'm a, you know, my mother was a miner's wife. I'm a miner's wife, and they frame themselves in that way. And I, to modern ears, especially how we're trained to consume certain things, you would hear that, you know, the especially the East Coast New Yorkers that we are, you know, you want to go like, well, that's a little reductive. You know, you could, uh, you know, you could uh, go to school. Subservient, yeah. yes. And uh, <laughs> if you said that to one of those women, they would most likely tell you to go f- yourself. They would be just right. like, because I think that there's, for them, there's a pride in that and a sense of tradition in that. And, you know, that the other thing about it, as you pointed out, this film is about the women because not only are they, you know, out there, you know, leading the charge in a lot of cases and, and taking on these fights and, and, and getting these cars to turn back and, and packing guns and making speeches. But on top of that, you just get this feeling of they are as crucial a part of this ecosystem as anything else. This system that they are a part of and that they love it, like they are, you know, just a vital part of this community and this system. And that's what makes the ending, I think, even more heartbreaking is just the understanding of the system that they are a part of and the system that they are fighting to improve but still maintain has ultimately failed them, I think is, is the, the real gut punch of that, that moment. Yeah. I would wager a bet that if, if, I was, if I were ever to meet Barbara, I would ask her this question. If those women inspired her to be as brave as she was mm. to continue shooting. I mean, I, yeah. Because how can you not be affected by them? I mean, I, I, I wonder, because I didn't listen to it, but I did find that apparently Barbara Koppel was on an episode of the Marin podcast. So, so <laughs> maybe, that's what I'm saying. Maybe he asked, who were you guys? And she listed, you know, the women. We don't know. We don't, you know, I haven't, I haven't listened. Mm-hmm. I should have done my due diligence on that. But I, it just, <laughs> I didn't know if I was prepared to hear him do a full coffee ad before I heard one of the great so when those- of our lifetime. <laughs> So when those guys got shot, what was that about? <laughs> you know, when the when the the fella told you you didn't, you know, he wanted to see your ID. That reminded me of that one time that I was down at the comedy cellar. Like it just goes on for ten more minutes. And and you know, and Damon <laughs> Wayne said, "I'm just gonna do jazz." <laughs> oh my goodness. Um, well, she did. She does say in the behind the scenes that those people have re- remained her friends, which that is um that is one of the best fallouts, I don't know what you call it, you know, the best yeah. side effect of making a documentary is do you become friends with some people that you wouldn't have never met well, in your the, life? Yeah. I Which mean, you, wonderful. you just got to assume there's some level of connection there when the one minor gets shot in the face and dies and she's oh. like in the room with the mother and his 16-year-old wife and yeah, we got a baby on the way, and then just being wow. at the funeral. Like, you can't, like, no matter how much a camera might open somebody up to being, you know, a little more open, you're not going to be given that kind of access unless you're, That's like, right. really, like, right, connected with those people. Well, and also, you're not going to walk away from that at the end and never yeah. see those people again. That's not yeah. possible. It's not, you can't be a good human being and do and- that. And those are my no. favorite things about, like, she talked about in the behind the scenes about um, when, uh, you know, uh, spo- spoilers for our usual game at the end, when she won the Oscar 
and she called them up and like they were all just going like we we want an Oscar like you know all the people of the town that she was talking to were like we want an Oscar and celebrating oh and they yeah. were cheering and those are always <laughs> my favorites in terms of like you know anytime somebody brings the subject of their documentary to the Oscars with them uh anything like that I that always makes me so happy uh because it's somebody who would mm-hmm. never otherwise be a part of that world uh getting access to that world you know so many people well I shouldn't say never Every once in a while, weirdly, the subject of a documentary somehow gets a career out of it, which is always surprising. The fact that for some reason somebody watched Marjo and went, "What if we put this guy in movies?" Um, I don't know if you. That's the, yeah. The 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 documentary about the like semi charlatan preacher. Somebody went, "I think we should do a knockoff Star Wars starring this guy," and it happened. It's called Star Crash. Look it up, kids. Um, but yeah, that, I find that so moving. Oh, I know Star Crash. <laughs> of course maybe. you do. You probably own Star Crash. Hey, hey, hey! Look at this yeah, wall. Absolutely. It's in there. Um, but I always love that, and I think that that's so, so great. And another thing that I found kind of good is, you know, when you look up this film and you look up, you know, the struggles in Harlan County, it is pointed out, uh, you know, that Harlan County, while it was the subject of the the Harlan County War, the bloody Harlan strikes of the 1930s. In 2019, there was a strike after Blackwell Coal went bankrupt, uh, and they point out mm. the strike was entirely peaceful, and the miners got a five million dollars settlement. And I just find that a little, I, I like weirdly, just that was very nice to read that like the the third part of the Harlan County trilogy, yeah, change. ended co- <laughs> like everybody was fine. Because I got nervous because you look at Harlan County's uh, page on like a Wikipedia or whatever, and then they'll have the entry underneath. It goes 2019 Harlan County strike. And you just have fear as you go to click it. Like God, what happened? Sure. You don't want to read that. It all happened again. So many years later. And then it just goes, no, it was all good. It was pretty cool. Everybody was, everybody was chill. You're like, Oh, all right. (laughs) You know, everyone's, everyone's just having a good time. We just, you know, hung out, shared some stories and said, we done with this. Yeah, we're done. Let's go. (laughs) Okay. Um yeah, it's uh it's quite the history. And you know, I I said this to Mike. I don't know if you ever saw the show Justified. It's set in Harlan County and the the protagonist and the antagonist, their backstory is it's not that they're war buddies and that's why they're so like closely connected. It's that we dug coal together. Uh, and that's, that's and true. like so like you just like watching this documentary, you get an even more clear sense of like why by the end of that show, the final scene is just them talking in a prison cell. And it's like, yeah, well, you know, we dug coal together and nothing will bond you like that. (laughs) We, we dug coal together. And it's the same as like, yeah, we went to Vietnam together. We went to Afghanistan together. It's just, you now see like, okay, digging, digging coal in particular is enough of a war zone, but just in that County itself, it has enough of a, tragic history right to just bond people even if they end up splitting you know morally down the road at some point and uh i think that's that's interesting the show always ends its seasons with that that country song you'll never leave harlan alive which tells the same kind of story yeah. of a guy talking about his granddad who had a tobacco farm swearing to god he's never going to go work in the mines because if you work in the mines you're done and then Times got hard and tobacco wasn't selling. And the man with the big company said, the only way you can keep your house, you come in these mines. And I think that that's an element too, is these people in film, they want to work. They want to stay in this community. They want to take care of their families. You know, they just want to be able to do that Mm -hmm. in a way that they can also see their families. 
And have hot water. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. Just one and, basic yeah. things. You know, have a sick day. If, you know, yeah. they get sick from breathing in, you know, toxic bullshit all day, which I just, you know, I feel like maybe the only bit of editorializing she does is when she shows the CEO saying, this doesn't cause black lung, that's nothing. And then it just like cuts to the doctor going, yeah, no, like every other country in the world has figured yeah. out how to not get black lung from mining coal, uh, except for us. And the guy well, just kind of goes like, God. we've all been wearing masks for two years. And you look at that and you just go, well, just yeah. get a mask. Yeah. You know? yeah. Yeah, very different reaction based on the last two years of our lives, you know. I mean, then again, half of the miners would probably say well, it's it, it's not even effective. I, I I'm gonna have health reason. I'm gonna have health problems wearing the mask. Come on. Also, that scene with the doctor is also probably my second favorite scene in the movie, just because like we were talking about the humanity that just runs through this. Just the three guys sitting at the table. They got their shirts off and everything, and they're just talking about like. We go in the mines and we come out and we're all just covered in soot and the, the coal dust and everything. And the one black guy goes, yeah, you guys come out looking like me. And then the, they all just start laughing and like, yeah, you know, because when we come Everyone's out of the mine. Everyone's a brother when they yeah. exit. That's what they we're say. All, yeah. We're, yeah, yeah, we're all just people. And it's just that one thing of like maybe in Harlan County, all the there, there's definitely probably racial stuff going on down there. But at the end of the day, it's all going to be class issues that are really driving home all of the fucking issues that really make up this movie because like they said we come out of that we come out of that shaft <laughs> we're all covered in this crap and we all right. look the same and we all got the same problems that's right and i also think that that scene um is important because i could be wrong but it seemed like that doctor was not mic'd but but Barbara got him to speak and, and they got good sound and it's really hard to get good sound. And you can tell cause how yeah. busy it is in the hospital and back of, um, so yeah. So I watched that scene and I think, Ooh, you got, you got sound out of that. That's pretty amazing. <laughs> yeah. You know? So <laughs> that's true. This, this whole thing takes on a, a whole nother, you know, it's, it's the same way that like all of us are broken now um, with any, uh, you know, for any of us that, that have, have partners or romantic partners, who who hate us because every time we point out and go that was eighty yard, yeah that that was you know that was that was eighty yard. That's not right. That for right. you watching this, yeah, for, for you watching this had to be even. It has to take that to another level as you're sitting back and just going like, man, they got lucky with that one. Oh, let me tell you this today. Or just how yeah. do they do that? And oh, I gotta I gotta up <laughs> my game. You know, I, I noticed that um the DPS and I and I don't know which one it was Kevin Keating and and Hart Perry, but whoever was filming the faces had the most exquisite timing just when that person started to say something emotional there was a little push in and i got a little bit closer and then i felt like i was really listening more and yeah i mean yeah i i have been lucky to work with great dps and those who have that skill and who really can just follow the mind of the viewer and make the camera do those things. It's cause it, you cannot, you cannot get that effect in an edit. Even if you punch in, you could take that shot and maybe it's, you know, you punch in like 125% and you use it as a cut. Yeah. It's not the same thing. It's not the same thing as the eye of the cameraman listening to what that person is saying and slowly pushing into that face amazing aren't those always the best when you've got 
when even when you have like a shot in mind and you happen to have a good DP on you and you tell them what you want and they somehow just find something extra in it and you just it's oh. just oh, the best moment that is years and years and years of of practice it's and it 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 almost makes any of us that have ever like been in a director's chair when somebody is that good, you know, at their job as a cinematographer, as a DP, that you do sit back and go, "Oh, I'm a fraud." This person, <laughs> this person speaks in images, like they get it. Yes. This is pure, man. Now, what am I doing? You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, I tend not to tell them how to do their job. <laughs> it's not, you know, you can't speak if you can't if you can't do it. Don't tell them how to do it. <laughs> Did anybody else have anything they wanted to to add of note about Harlan County before we wrap up talking about the the Oscars in the year that was? Oh, just no. that it's brilliant. I don't know. It just it's just a it's just a brilliant, timeless piece of art, and every person should be forced with toothpicks in their eyeballs to watch <laughs> it if they have any desire to make any documentary at all. I will never reach that level, but I aspire to it. <laughs> Honestly, it kind of fucking sucks that it's so timeless because when the hell are we just ever going to learn in this goddamn country? I know. Look at what's going on now. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's 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 truly insane that we've literally learned nothing and we're still dealing with union problems and workers' rights and everything. It's it's just out of control. Um, honestly, the only thing I feel like I would want to point out is maybe I'm crazy, but I think the Coens have definitely seen this movie because the shooting oh, sure. scene feels like the scene in no country for old men when anton chigurh is going after josh brolin and you never see him you just see the muzzle yeah. flash in the distance i don't know that's just i feel like it, the Coens must have seen this for sure i mean john sales talks about like when he was making mate one like everybody who was coming to work with him on it he made them watch harlan county oh, I mean, oh mate, that's mate, yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, mate, mate, one definitely John Sales. I mean, that's a hundred percent, no, no doubt in my mind. That that genius of a man definitely made people watch that. I'm just, I, I don't know why my mind just flashed to like, I feel like the Coens definitely watched this while they were like helping Sam Raimi throw blood at Bruce <laughs> Campbell, like making Evil Dead. But I don't know. But uh, I mean, I guess that just goes to show the wide ranging influence of this movie because uh, you know the Coens definitely watched it in my mind. John Sales did. I definitely think the team that did justified must have watched this to just further inform that backstory of mining. And, well, I and mean, everything. it's a note that this movie was like, was notable when it came out. Like it was at a time where documentaries barely yeah. got theatrical releases. You know, I, I think like hearts and minds a couple years prior was a bit of a sensation, but there's something about the fact that like I mentioned to my, my mother, uh, Oh, we're doing Harlan County on the show. And she goes, yeah, I remember that. Like that that it was one of those things, one of those crossover kind of films that like even the general public. I mean, nowadays, you know, we mentioned Netflix documentaries. Nowadays like more and more people watch documentaries, but that this was such a a landmark that quote unquote regular people were going, "No, you got to see this." is really incredible. That's right. You know, that's an incredible testament to this this film and, you know, doesn't doesn't happen all that often so really you know okay you know who else has definitely seen this movie which is going to tie <laughs> back to something we talked about before i think david gordon green jody hill and danny mcbride have watched this show this this documentary because i think it informs their work very much because In george washington well with george washington but 
even something yeah. as silly as like the righteous gemstones, a lot of people kind of give it flat because they give the gemstones a humanity instead of just condemning them as charlatans. They're like, well, no, these guys actually believe even if they are capitalist shitheads. But there is a thing, as you mentioned, that sometimes having the outside perspective gives you a better perspective for telling the story. David Gordon Green and Danny McBride are not from the Carolinas, which is where all of their shows take place. Mm. Our friend Sierra, she grew up in a Baptist world in, in Texas, but similar to what they're doing in Gemstones. She told me there's so much of that show she doesn't get her jokes because she goes, that's just what life was like for us. And I go, and I'm not from there. And David Gordon Green and Danny McBride are not from there. So they definitely see a bit of the, this is kind of crazy. I think there's a bit of a joke here we and can I make. And I think that that's, you know, a lot of Barbara Cobble's work that I think is so interesting is, is that, you know, and I don't mean to say anything too much, but like, she's a New Yorker, but she has made acclaimed films about Minnesota and Kentucky. She made an acclaimed film about the Dixie Chicks. And yet if you talk to people and you go, what's probably her weakest film? Most people go, a documentary she made about George Steinbrenner and the Yankees. And you're like, that doesn't make sense. She's a New Yorker. That should have been, to forgive my phrase, a home run. And most people go, it's fine. It's fine. You know, but yet she's able to capture all of these different distinct regions, uh, which I think is so great. Now, to talk about the year, uh, you know, we try and sometimes have Tom guess uh, what it got. But, you know, I already spoiled it. Yes, Harlan County USA did win Best Documentary Feature that year at the Academy Awards. Uh, which made Barbara Koppel the uh, second solo female director to win in that category after Nancy Hamilton for Helen Keller and Her Story in 1954. The other nominees that year were Hollywood on Trial, Off the Edge, People of the Wind, and Volcano, an inquiry into the life and death of Malcolm Lowry. Uh, and just for context, the Best Picture nominees that year at the Oscars were All the President's Men, Bound for Glory, Network, Taxi Driver, and the winner, Rocky. Bang up here. Um, I actually, I always year. try and watch the other nominees uh, in in a year. So I did actually watch ahead of this the other four uh, documentary nominees. And? It's one of those cases, truly, where this is so Harlan County is so beyond what any of these other ones are. And I'm not saying that as a disparagement, but it is just this case of like you watch those other four and they are straightforward documentaries they are of their time but this is a case where you look at it and just go this is so you know we talked about like this year you know you were rooting for you, you know amy you said you were rooting for ascension you know i know flea was very big for tom mm -hmm. uh you know oh, yeah. i i i am a sucker for summer of soul but there wasn't anything that i looked at and went like oh this is bad isn't it you know there was at least like arguments to be made for all the nominees oh but when you look at this year it is just a case of like there's no argument. This leaves them in the dust because the rest of them are... I mean, Volcano, the Malcolm Lowry documentary, at least does something interesting where we're going to go to these locations and film where he was while we talk about his life, but it's all voiceovers. Hollywood on Trial is just... It's about the blacklist and John Huston narrating about, well, we, put, we spoke in front of the committee. And I will say, the only thing that's jarring about Hollywood on Trial is, again, not to bring it back to our recurring character on this podcast, but they cut to Governor Ronald Reagan going, talking about 
Well, no, we never had a problem with the, you know, I mean, the problem was the communists, you know, and, and then the unions had gotten too corrupt. And I'm like, oh, it's 1976. You guys don't know where this is going yet. You just don't, you don't know. It's, uh, be prepared. But yes, this is one of those cases where you look at those other nominees and it's just, there's, there's no question how much this moved the needle forward. And I think that that helps because it's easy to watch this now and go like, yeah, this is, of course, this is how we make documentaries. Like, I understand. You know, if you're a young person watching this, you've seen enough modern documentaries. You get it. But to see it in the context of its time and realize that Barbara Koppel was just so beyond the other guys in, in, in her generation that she was just doing something so much more impressive. And then, God bless her, you know, 14 years later, wins the Oscar again. The only woman to win two Oscars in that category, like an incredible achievement that she just comes back 14 years later, totally different film and, and wins it again and is, is still going, still making stuff. I think. Yeah. Fantastic. I'm trying to remember the last off. thing. <laughs> really? My hero. <laughs> yeah. I'm trying to remember the last thing she did. I don't know. Maybe, maybe it was that Mariel Hemingway documentary. I don't remember what her most recent film is. I should have noted that, but she's still going, she's still working. Mostly in documentary, made one narrative film, and then went, not doing that again. Nope. Not for me. Nope. Yeah. Uh, Tom, it was yeah. Havoc, by the way. Remember Havoc? The Anne Hathaway movie from 2005? Oh, who doesn't remember? I, I mean, everyone's just still <laughs> raving about Havoc down at their local it's watering one of those, holes. It's one of those things that I remember coming out and being a big deal about just like, oh, Anne Hathaway's doing a grown-up movie. And it wasn't until like two or three years ago that I found out Barbara Koppel made it and just went, that's... That doesn't make sense. That would be like that would be like finding. I saw that on her IMDb page, and I thought, well, okay, well, that's like finding out yeah. Errol Morris directed Marley and Me. You're just like, I don't. Where? How did this happen? I'm sorry. It's, it's like finding out Joe Berlinger directed the Blair Witch Two: Book of Shadows. <laughs> that's true. All right, her that's last true. movie. Her last movie was Desert One, uh, a documentary about oh, the uh, yeah. Iranian Revolution uh, hostage. Yeah crisis yeah, okay about the secret mission to free them she tried to tell ben to go to yeah. argo fuck himself so our, yeah and our recurring <laughs> character ronald reagan shows up again so always always a, a banner to always uh, amy thank you so much for for joining us for this this was this was so cool oh this was so fun it's so fun to it's so fun to gush about things that i love and i have such a passion for um all the films of the Maisels and all the films that barbara's made and D.A. Pennebaker, all the yeah. all the greats. I have such a passion for what they did because they really, not only did they do it in a time when it was really difficult and technically very difficult. I mean, look at Harlan County. They went out there at five in the morning and someone yeah. had to hold the lights, you know, holding lights, you know. So, um, so I bow down to them for their technical prowess and their stick-to-itiveness, but also because what they made is timeless and it, and and it stands up against any documentary that anyone has made yeah, now it's... which is a saying a lot considering how much the technology has changed and also how much people are very media savvy now and media aware because they you know everybody films everything and throws it up on YouTube or TikTok or something you know so i think that um it says something that the skill level of that group of people 
it stands the test of time. Well, thank you. And, I, and you know, in terms of speaking of modern documentaries, you know, I, again, I, I'm just so thrilled to have you because I am a fan of the, of the films that you make. Um, and let's, if we can, let's throw a plug in for that. I believe that um, Pickle, I think, is still on the Criterion channel, right? As of, as of this recording, I think it is. Um, yeah, I think Pickle is still up there. And um, my, my, new, my new film will be called Happy Campers. Um, and it deals with um, economic inequality, the working class. But it's not, it, it's not a dry, it's not a dry film. It's, it's not home. Has a lot. Well, yours, yours, yours never are. I the the ending because I rewatch. Like I mentioned to you before I rewatched Zipper today, and the ending s- just still cracks me up. I love that that little the the um the the cover of Don't Fear the Reaper and the uh, you know the, the yes. kids in, in was it Honduras? <laughs> yes. Where is it that the ride got shipped to? On, it was in, in Honduras. Honduras. The kids mm-hmm. riding the the Coney Island ride. It's 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 great. Um, yeah. Do you have anything else? That's where it ended up. So that's where we went. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, but this one, I, I actually, I lived in a trailer park for three years and it was life changing for me. And that's why I, I appreciate when somebody from somewhere that they don't, I mean, I knew a little bit about it and I knew of the area and I, I grew up in Baltimore and, um, but I had never lived in a camper. And afterwards, after I, after I shot the film, I read, um, oh, now I'm going to forget the name, the book of mm-hmm. Nomadland. Um, um, oh, what is her name? I can't think of her name. Um, mm-hmm. Jessica Bruder, who wrote, who wrote Nomadland. And, um, and there's, there's a chapter very close to the end of the book where she says, I wasn't getting close enough to my subjects. So I bought a camper and I thought, what in the hell am I doing? And I had that exact experience and I just, I really bonded with her over that. And um, so, yeah, so it's going to be, I hope it's going to be good. We'll see. Still well, I'm very excited for it. I'll obviously uh, check that out. And did you want to plug any social media, any websites, anything else? Uh, everything is either Films by Amy or um, my Twitter and my Instagram are Films by Amy. And my new film is Happy Campers Doc on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Absolutely. Checking out, uh, Amy, thank you again so much for joining us. And everybody else, stick around. We'll be right back with our picks for the National Film Registry. Thanks, you guys. Appreciate it. The National Film Registry isn't some fixed object, frozen in time. It's always growing, adding new titles every year. These annual selections are made by the National Film Preservation Board, with members like Martin Scorsese, Alfre Woodard, and Leonard Malton, and representatives from organizations like the Academy, the DGA, and the AFI coming together to debate and decide. But they don't just pull titles out of thin air, they pull from the public, people like you and us, who can submit their nominations for the registry in a form on the Library of Congress's website. What we do, at the end of each episode, is have Mike and Tom pick films not yet in the registry that they feel should be, inspired by that day's topic. At the end of each season, those films will be formally submitted to the National Film Registry for consideration, on behalf of your missing out. Here are today's picks. Not to spoil anything or whatever, but, you know, my initial pick was gonna be because it's so obvious for this movie but i can't because i picked it last season is mate one the john sales movie uh so i had to find something else and i wanted to find something that was just as much about 
uh, unions and workers' rights and the and all of that. So I found one that I think is a great fucking movie. Uh, the filmmaker should have a lot of movies in the registry. Not all of them. The guys went on a pretty fucking terrible run for a while, but uh, he's rebounded quite a bit. But it's got an amazing cast. It's really about unions and like the stuff we were talking about, about how unions are good, but unions can be corrupted if you're not paying attention. And the unions are good at making the workers not pay attention and focused on other things and kind of focusing on each other and doing the thing that we really see nowadays, which is making, you know, the poor fight the poor while the rich just keep getting richer. Um, it's quite an incendiary movie for its time. It's, it's aged pretty well, uh, which is crazy considering the production of the movie was a nightmare since one of the actors would routinely pull a gun on the director because he was a drugged out maniac and didn't like being told what to do. Uh, my movie is Blue Collar by Paul Schrader. Richard Pryor would pull guns on Paul Schrader because Richard Pryor was a fucking nut job. Um, but I think it's a great movie. Uh, Richard Pryor, Harvey Keitel, Yafit Kodo. Uh, it's just, it's again, like we were saying during this, this episode, it's just, you know, we knew all this shit back then, you know, filmmakers and storytellers and people just knew like, yeah, like we, we get what the problems are. We know we just got to pay attention and we got to focus and we got to, make some changes and we haven't learned a goddamn thing but don't let that this movie's not homework it's pretty funny and then it gets pretty tense and it's just got that paul schrader really scuzzy really lived in blue collar thing about it that i just love and i think a lot of schrader stuff as a writer and as a director should uh, be in the uh, the film registry. So uh, I'm putting up Blue Collar. I, up until this morning, had a different pick in the spot. I had a narrative film that deals with uh, a, a broad uh, view of the evolution of the American labor movement. Uh, but then in prep for this, I thought I should watch a film that I mentioned in our episode, which is uh, 1990s American Dream, Barbara Koppel's second Oscar-winning documentary. And I was just flat-out blown away by it. Um, people don't talk about American Dream the way that they talk about Harlan County. And I'm not going to say that it's just as good a film as Harlan County. Obviously, there's more of an urgency to Harlan County because there's gunfire going on in Harlan County. There's death and, and, and assassinations and, and violence there's no violence in American Dream. American Dream uh, focuses on the 1985-1986 Hormel uh, protests and strikes. Um, and what's so fascinating about it is that that's, you know, 1986, that's 10 years after Harlan County, USA comes out. Harlan County, USA depicts a very different world. Um, American Dream is observing a post-PATCO America. Uh, you know, when the air traffic controllers went on strike and Ronald Reagan fired 11,000 striking air traffic controllers who were demanding a four-day workday as opposed to a five-day workday, um, that gave other private employers, uh, Dodge, International Paper, Hormel, uh, that encouraged them to hire strike uh, striker replacements or, or scabs, as they get called, uh, instead of negotiating with the labor unions, because the labor unions themselves had gotten very inefficient, um, uh, 
you know, I'm, when you consider in, I have this here that in 1970, there were over 380 major strikes or lockouts in the U.S. By 1980, the number had dropped to under 200. 1999, it fell to 17. And in 2010, there were only 11. That's a, a shocking statistic to see. And what this film brilliantly documents is why that happened. The union chooses to bring in an outside uh, labor advisor, a guy who's just making a career out of you know, labor organizing and, and traveling around and going to all these different places. And then the union members themselves found he wasn't being helpful. He was just getting media attention they felt for himself. And what this film captures, I think, most compellingly of all American Dream is that focuses on the guys who would be called the scabs, which is this strike happens, this strike isn't working, Hormel is just hiring replacements, and at a certain point, guys are showing up at these meetings and going, I can't feed my family. You haven't gone to the negotiating table. You're not doing your job. You're not actually helping us. This is all grandstanding. And you get to see these very intimate moments as as men are sitting in these bars talking to the camera and and with tears in their eyes about how much they don't want to cross the picket line and knowing that they'll be be jeered for it, but at the same time saying, like, my kid can't eat right now. As I noted in the episode, it is very much a continuation of that ending scene of Harlan County, USA. It is very much a portrait of the powers that be in the late 1980s looking at unions and rather than sending thugs and rather than sending bats, just saying, give them enough rope to hang themselves. These guys will eat each other alive. There will be egos involved. There will be grandstanding. And at the end of the day, the public is now on our side. People are not sympathetic to this strike. People are not sympathetic to this cause. If you are wondering how we got to the place we are at today, you need to look at Harlan County, USA, and you need to look at American Dream. So both should be in the registry. Harlan County is, I think, American Dream has to be in the National Film Registry to see the post-Reaganomics, post-Patco America's response to strikes. Let's all go to the lobby, lobby, lobby. Thank you again to Amy Nicholson for joining us. Next week, our Disney dramaturg returns. Jordan Beck joins us once again to discuss the original Fantasia. Don't forget to follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you again next time. Here on You're Missing Out. They honor movies of historical, cultural, or aesthetic importance. On the National Film Registry.